This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello, everyone. This is Flo. And this is Jesse. And we're already back with another episode of the Great War Podcast. We're very happy to have a look with our interview partner at a more forgotten topic, forgotten front when it comes to World War I, and then even diving so deep that we go into a forgotten topic within the forgotten front. Everything is forgotten. It's the inception of, of forgetfulness, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I really had a great time talking to Gwendal Pieguet, who, who's our guest, about uh, the Balkan Front and more particularly about the Russians who got sent there and all the reasons behind that, all the difficulties of inter-allied uh, coordination in Macedonia with all the different nationalities, including these Russians uh, on the front. And uh, it's of particular interest to me because I have a family connection there. So uh, it was quite cool. Yeah, I found it quite fascinating how it um, started with uh, no one had a clue what to do on that front into like a major military operation. And then I think kind of the, the Russian revolutions kind of derailed this uh, thing for the, for the Russian soldiers there. And um, at some point, apparently vodka was traded. So that's, that's all you need to know as a, as a hook. Um, yeah, uh, enjoy the interview. Um, once again, we do appreciate if you support us on Patreon. If you support us on Patreon, you can ask historians like Wendal and all our other guests in the future uh, questions about the topics that they are researching. And if you like this podcast, uh, please leave us a review on iTunes, actually, or on wherever you listen to this podcast, because that helps other people finding the podcast. That would be much appreciated. And without further ado, here is the interview. Hello, everyone. I'm very happy to welcome our guest for today, who is uh, a doctoral candidate at the University of Brest in France. His name is Gwendal Pieguet. And his area of specialization is the Balkan Front in Macedonia, and more particularly the Russian expeditionary forces that ended up there. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. He has also published several articles in academic journals on that and some other World War I topics. So, Gwendal, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks to you. All right, so let's jump right into it. We've got a few questions from viewers and a few that I slipped in. I should mention, by the way, that I'm particularly happy to be dealing with this topic because I have a distant relative by marriage, not by blood, but nonetheless, who served in the French artillery in the French Army of the Orient in the Balkans. So uh, this is kind of a, a cool area for me to learn a bit more about as well. So here we go. Let's start it uh, at the basics. 
How did you get interested in this topic of the Macedonian front and the Russians who ended up being being sent there? What drew you to that uh, area? When I have started uh, to, to study the, the First World War, I was... Uh, more focusing on the, the history of the German army, uh, and especially uh, on the phenomenon of desertion uh, among the ranks of the, of, the, of the Imperial Army. But I, uh, I had, uh, uh, and I, I still have a strong interest um, uh, in the, to the, the history of Russia. I was fond of uh, Russian history and li literature. Uh, I was reading a lot about Russia and, and the Eastern Front uh, when I started my Uh, master thesis um, and also in all my readings I was always very curious about the Macedonian front about the, the front d'Orient as we say uh, in French um, but it was a front that was always briefly mentioned insisting on the fact that it was an important one but not giving the specifics and the and all the on uh, all the details um and uh, i also heard in my family uh, I, i heard a lot about this front because my great grandfather he was uh, on this front uh, in the french navy and um during all my readings i always thought that it was a fascinating uh, place and moment uh, of the great war imagine uh, this front line going from Uh, the north of Valona in Albania nowadays, um, crossing uh, all the Balkans uh, to, through um, uh, Monastir, through uh, uh, the Prespa Lakes, um, um, not in the south of Uskub, and going um, on the on the other side of the of the Bal Balkan Peninsula. And, um, and just imagine this front with Bulgarian soldiers, uh, French soldiers, British, Serbians, um, Russians, uh, of course, Ottomans also, and German, uh, Germans, Austro-Hungarians, all these people and, uh, fighting on this front where you also had colonial armies coming from Africa, from Vietnam, and so on. And... Um, And th this is a front that is quite well pictured in the, the French movie uh, Capitaine Conan by Bertrand Tavernier, which I really advise uh, the audience to, to watch, which is one, up to me, one of the best movies about the, the Great War uh, that has been made uh, in France. And when I was reading about this, uh, this front, I discovered the, the story of these uh, 24,000 soldiers, uh, Russian soldiers, Uh, who were sent to to fight in, in the French forces uh, in Macedonia, um, and um, I thought this is the perfect match for like my interest for Russia. Uh, I have started to learn uh, Russian language uh, at this point, and my interest for this front. So that's that's it. That's what made uh, the PhD topic. All right. So a conjoncture of interests, uh, one might say. Um, right. So let's get into the, let's say the strategy level a little bit. Um, what was the goal of the French army of the Orient in the Balkan Peninsula? And do you think that it was achieved in the end? Or did the front remain as it is sometimes called in English literature, a, a so-called sideshow? Um, the the idea to to intervene in the 
in the Balkans um, is quite old. Uh, in fact, at the beginning of the war, uh, in the autumn uh, 1914, uh, in, um, in the French army, you, uh, someone like uh, François Desprez, the French general, proposed to, to intervene uh, directly in the Balkans uh, in, the, in the fall of uh, 1914 to, to help the Serbian army and maybe to to break the line at this point, uh, a decisive blow. The idea was also in the Russian army to help directly the, the Serbian uh, forces. And on the British side, you, of course, know very well the, uh, the idea to, to intervene against the Ottoman Empire with the, the uh, Dardanelles, as we say in French, and the, the, the Gallipoli operation. Uh, but for a long time, it was uh, excluded by the French army um, because the idea was that the main front uh, remains in Belgium and remains on the Western Front. But finally, it was the, the Bulgarian attack against Serbia, um, which uh, caused the collapse of uh, the Serbian army uh, in, the, in the summer and the fall of 1915, which creates some kind of a, a precipitation of, uh, of all these plans that were, that were pro- proposed. And the, the Serbian army asked for help to, uh, to the, the French for- forces who sent... Um, in quite a precipitated manner, um, around uh, 70,000 men to help the Serbian army. Uh, a big part of them came directly from Gallipoli. So you, you had troops who were already fighting against the Ottoman troops, uh, British and French ones uh, that were in the Dardanelles. They arrived in October uh, 1915 uh, in Thessaloniki, in uh, in Salonika, and they tried to establish contact with the Serbian army to to try to recreate a a front line uh, to hold against uh, the Central Powers. This operation failed uh, because the Serbian army had to retreat all through the Albanian mountains, which is called the Golgotha, uh, which was a uh, an episode during uh, uh, which the, the Serbian army lost uh, a tremendous number uh, of soldiers, also civilians. All the, you can imagine an entire state of Serbia, like flying, going to to uh, to escape to the Bulgarian advance. Um, it was not a complete failure because, thanks to the Italian navy and the and the French one, they managed to um, evacuate all the. Serbian army to Corfu, but the the goal to save Serbia was um, totally uh, almost a complete failure. But um, on the other hand, um, it would have been a, a political uh, disaster for the French and the British army to to say, okay, now we we go back to France, we go back to to England, and we and and everything is done, uh, game over. Uh, so they. They decided to stay. Uh, they decided to to create some kind of an entrenched camp around the city of uh, Salonika and to to stay here until it would be possible to organize some new operations. Um, and the problem is that uh, at this point, the French army, uh, the French, uh, the French Armée d'Orient, and all the um, Allied troops were commanded by. Uh, the general Sarai, who was uh, the the head of the uh, of the French Armée d'Orient, and uh, then to the head of the Allied forces, um, but for no one the 
there was no clear plan. So we are here. We don't really have the forces to to organize um, a decisive offensive. And no one in France is quite comfortable with the idea of feeding a second front. And at this point, the British start to have some uh, some other thoughts about, uh, for example, Mesopotamia and uh, the the other front in uh, in Egypt. So during this period, you, you have no real con- no concrete goal, uh, and they are here. You can't make them go back because it would admit you will ad- admit that it's it's uh, failure. And moreover, you have the delicate situation that Greece, uh, where they arrived, was a neutral state. So Sarai was quite clear that if you want to do something about this front, you must give me more men. Uh, when he arrives, he, he has barely 70 uh, or 80,000 men under his command. And he says, I can't do anything about, uh, about this front without more men. And I can't do anything is if um, the political situation of Greece is not more clear. Uh, if the if on my back you have a neutral state who suddenly can um, go on the on the side of the central power, it would be a, a great great problem. But many politicians in France decided that it could be interesting to have this force uh, in Greece um, and on the Macedonian front to push uh, some states in the Balkans to to come on the side of the Allies. For example, Romania. Romania was one of the great greatest hopes of the French diplomacy uh, during the year 1916, uh, and the, the French and uh, the French politicians had great expectations about the coming into um, on the side of the Allies uh, of Romania, and. When uh, when uh, Joffre at the Chantic conference decided that we they would organize a great of offensive in 1916, um, the the Macedonian Front had a, a role in that uh, in that part that was mainly to retain troops uh, of the central powers in Macedonia while uh, the great and decisive attack would come from uh, the West. So the Macedonian front remained here, but only with a a secondary role, not a main one. Mm -hmm. It became uh, another thing uh, than a sideshow, and it became a more important uh, front when uh, finally in June 1917 uh, the Allied uh, succeeded to to bring Greece into the war and when uh, Sarai, which was not a great general uh, at managing uh, his officers, his troops, uh, was removed and replaced by the the French general Guillaume. At this point he started to reorganize the French army, but also the inter-allied cooperation on the, this front that was from 19, uh, December 1917 to, uh, let's say, uh, June 1918. Um, and then a new French general after Guillaume arrived at the head of the Armée d'Orient and at the, more precisely at the head of the allied armies of the, of the Orient and decided to to give to this army uh, a decisive role and to organize an offensive in uh, in the Balkans in 1918, uh, um, which totally broke the Bulgarian lines and 
pushed uh, the, um, the Bulgarian to ask for an armistice. So we can say that uh, it started as a rescue operation, which failed, and um, the situation remained unclear for a long period, but it's only at the end of 1917 when the French army tried to reorganize this front, and when a French uh, general, um, the, the general uh, Franchet Desprez, arrived uh, at the head of this army in June 1918, uh, that he gave to, to this army a, a role that he had not uh, in the past. All right, the Allies seem to definitely uh, take their time in terms of uh, their their strategy in some in some <laughs> cases. Um, I read that I think there's like a famous quote that the Allied forces at Salonika were like the biggest uh, prisoner camp uh, that the Central Powers had or something Absolutely. along those lines. Absolutely. Um, let's jump into the Russians now. Um, how did they end up sending these 24,000 men to the, to the Balkans? And I think they also sent an expeditionary course, um, an expeditionary corps to France to fight on the Western Front as well. So how did that come about that the Russians end up sending men kind of halfway around the continent to uh, fight with the French? Well, um, as I said, the idea of an intervention uh, in the Balkans was not new and it was in the heads and the minds of uh, French generals, but it was also an idea uh, proposed by uh, many Russian diplomats and uh, mainly ambassadors like uh, Trubetskoy, uh, like the Russian uh, foreign affairs ministers, Sergei Satsonov, and by the, the Russian ambassador in Paris, uh, Izvolsky. The main idea was to, to send um, uh, troops to support the Serbian army during um, the, the the winter 1914-1915, uh, and once again proposed when uh, the Serbian front was collapsing. Um, on the French side, um, there was a desperate need uh, for men. The, the battles of 1914 and 1915 were terrible blows for uh, the, the for the French army with. Uh, high numbers of, of casualties, and they wanted to ask the Russian part to give them men to fight on the Western Front. And they were not that happy about the idea to have these Russian men on, in the French army and to send them in the Balkans, while up to the French generals like Joff, the main priority was the Western Front. But on the other hand, uh, during the summer 1915, Russia was defeated on the battlefields of uh, Golistarno, um, was, uh, uh, went through the what do they call the Great Retreat, and, and they lost Poland, where they had very strong industrial capacities, and suddenly... Um, they needed uh, to ask for the French ally and the British ally, and also to partners like the United States to give them more more guns, more ammunitions, and so on. So the French army made proposed uh, an agreement: we give you more, uh, even more uh, shells, guns, and uh, whatever you need if you give us men. The Russian generals were not comfortable at all with this idea because. Uh, Alexeyev, who was the, the, now at the head of the, of, the, of the Russian army at the end of 1915, said clearly that we have no resources to 
to send troops on other fronts and we have uh, uh, other priorities. Moreover, Alexeyev was quite skeptical about the idea that a decisive blow could be uh, given to the central powers on the Western Front. Because for him, the front was stuck. Like everyone is blocked, you have no stri- no tactic, uh, no no tactical idea of how to to solve this. While on the eastern front, it's it's still um, half mobile war. You, you can uh, we can build a, a stra- strategy with this, and also was uh, agreed with French journals like Français Depres saying that something could be done with the Balkans. If you attract uh, Romania on uh, on the side of the Allies, uh, you can create a southern front. If you create a connection between the Romanian and the Russian forces on, on one side and the French and British soldiers and after the Serbians who are fighting on the, on the Balkan side. So he said um, the more interesting possibilities are not necessarily on the Western front. And moreover, I don't have any men to give you. But the diplomats in Petrograd were not felt that they could not say no to the French uh, con- um, colleagues because French was about to give more materials, uh, was about to give uh, more guns and so on. And it was politically very complicated to to say no. So um, uh, with the help of the Tsar, we, was quite, uh, we liked the idea to help Serbia. They said Let's give half to the Balkans and half to France. And uh, we will see if we can give more in the times to come. And uh, we must not forget that at the moment where the, this agreement is made, uh, the agreement was uh, established in the, in the, the spring in 1916. Uh, the negotiations had started in the winter 1915-1916. Uh, at this moment, Russia was trying to uh, secure uh, gains for the afterwar, gains uh, taken to the uh, Ottoman Empire, and up to, to Satsonov and uh, all the politicians, it was politically a good idea to, to send troops in the Balkans if, after the war, you, you would need to secure uh, the gains you have obtained uh, during negotiations with France and, uh, the, and the British Empire. So, Finally, they, they made this agreement, and at the, during the summer uh, 1916, uh, Russia sent troops from Arkhangelsk, which is now in the north of Russia, uh, going um, to Brest, uh, so at the other side of, uh, of, of uh, Europe. And another part of uh, these brigades, uh, so there were four brigades sent to uh, France and Balkans, um, and another part of the brigades took the Trans-Siberian uh, and went to Dalny and a boat through the Indian Ocean, uh, the Suez Canal, the Mediterranean, arrived in Marseille where they finally uh, reached uh, the, the French army. That is quite the round-the-world trip to end up. That's quite the odyssey. Um, now, once the uh, Russian brigades end up in the Balkans, in Macedonia, how is their performance? Because I can imagine that there would have been some challenges fighting alongside French troops, which are probably trained differently, probably equipped uh, perhaps slightly differently. Um, what was their battlefield performance judged? So, 
Um, in matters of equip, uh, equipment, uh, everything is given by the French Army. So the guns, the uniforms, uh, not all the the uniforms, but the, the helmets and so on. And they are trained uh, by the French Army in camps in Russian bases, which are created on the uh, on the French territory. Territory. You have a, a big Russian base in Laval, a big one in Mailly, another uh, in the in the Cournot. And in these camps, they are trained by French officers who uh, work who were working with uh, French interpreters. Uh, we're here to tra- translate all the tactical handbooks, all the maps, and so it was quite a quite a business because before the war no one had imagined that this kind of things could uh, could happen and it's more or less the same th- uh, the same thing in the balkans when they arrive uh, they are sent to the camp of zaitonik which, which is the, the big ally camp in uh, in the north of, of salonika and there they uh, they live with british troops french troops uh, serbian ones and the cooperation is even more complex uh, because you you have a real Babel uh, army, uh, like I don't know how many languages uh, you have to handle. So all the trainings are organized by the French army, but uh, in France they are trained for weeks and after sent to the ba- battlefield in the Balkans. Um, the army was already in the rush, which is to say when like when half of the uh, Russian soldiers arrived in. Uh, Salonika, they just have time to to organize a parade to to show uh, the beautiful uh, Russian troops arriving in in uh, Salonika, and then they are directly sent to uh, in the uh, into the mountains, uh, which was also another problem because uh, the reserve of the Russian troops trained to fight in the the in the mountains was uh, was not that huge, and uh, it it was necessary to create a complete training for them also. But when we uh, arrived to the fighting, all the French generals uh, and officers agreed to say that all these troops uh, fought bravely. Um, for example, uh, when they were sent to, uh, to fight with the Serbians and with uh, the French in the, in the city uh, to take back the city of Florina and then move north, to take the city of uh, Bitola uh, Monastir uh, in the in the north of Greece. So all all this front line is mainly um, located in what is now nowadays the border between uh, northern Macedonia and Greece. So uh, it's more or less the same places. And so when they are sent to these ba- ba- battles, uh, even Sarai said, like uh, in the Hellenic mountains, as in the Serbian plain, your legendary bravery has never wavered. So um, the, the French generals were quite happy about the, the behavior uh, and the performances of the Russian uh, army uh, on this on this uh, front. The main problem remained uh, inter-allied cooperation. You have a French artillery which have to synchronize with the French, uh, the Russian troops moving forwards, uh, covered by the Serbian flank. So everything remained complex, created um, uh, tensions between officers, and it's it's enough to to open a box in the French military archives or 
uh, in the Russian military archives to find maps where you can see Serbian uh, translated in, in Russian, translated in French. To just all these remain very complex. And even if French was the language the most commonly shared by Serbian officers, Russian officers, and their uh, French colleagues, um, to to implement this into the troops remain very complicated. And uh, moreover, uh, on a front where in the Balkans you you have not that much permissions, you can uh, not give some uh, rest to all the soldiers. And this creates a lot of tensions that, of course, um, re- reduces the performances of, uh, of your army. Yeah, um, the lack of leave time, lack of furlough is definitely always a killer for uh, soldiers' morale. It kind of sounds to me, as you're describing these difficulties overcoming uh, the language barrier for units that need to cooperate, it reminds me of kind of the Austro-Hungarian experience as well. We had a guest not so long ago on the podcast, uh, Dr. Scheer, who's, uh, who specializes in, in language in Austria-Hungary. And, and so, yeah, she talked to us a bit about that as well. Um, now, what happens when the rough Russian Revolution breaks out? How does this have an impact then on the officers and men uh, in, these, in these Russian units in the Balkan front How do they react? Um, so we must recall that uh, in the year 1917, you had two revolutions. And the first one, the, the February re- revolution, so uh, happened in uh, February, March, uh, March for us, uh, when the, the Russian Tsar uh, abdicates. Um, and the, the, the news of uh, the revolution arrived in France and in the Balkans, A few uh, a few days after it happened, uh, the news uh, reached uh, the soldiers, like let's say a week or a few days after. And at the beginning, you you can see uh, among the ranks two reactions. Uh, the first one is sadness. Many soldiers, some um, some uh, um, good picture of the Tsar, and felt like some kind of a of a of fear also. But on the other side, there was also some kind of joy because suddenly uh, the army published the precast number one, which is a, a precast, it's like a, an order in, fact, uh, in a re- re- Russian. And the, the, the precast number one stipulated that there would not be a mistreatment from, uh, from the officers to the soldiers and uh, that now soldiers were authorized, if not... Uh, Uh, pushed to to take part in political debates. So uh, the curious thing is that suddenly you have these Russian troops on the Macedonian front and you have Soviets, like Council of Soldiers, of uh, Russian uh, soldiers, which are coming like mushrooms, uh, like all over the front line uh, in small Macedonian villages where they are Uh, addressed uh, in the trenches, and you 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 have some kind of a, a political life that that arrives. But, well, I say political life, but it it, it was also more uh, more simple debates about food, about news from the country, about uh, very um, daily issues. You you also have uh, newspapers coming uh, to the to the front and new ideas 
start to uh, yeah to uh, to be exchanged between the soldiers. So at this point, it was not a problem. Like um, and moreover, the the February revolutions happens uh, in February March, and uh, news uh, arrived uh, arrived in uh, Macedonia after and at the spring. 1917, uh, Sarai launched an offensive against Bulgarians, and the Russian soldiers behave normally. You, you have no uh, uh, insubordination, uh, not that much, um, and not much than than he used to. Uh, you always have uh, uh, troubles with troops. Uh, in some ways, would would it be a revolution or not? So, so it was it was a bit business as usual. Moreover, the position of the uh, provisional government, uh, diplomatically speaking, was not a very different one from the the, uh, the imperial time. So the big change uh, did not happen at this moment. Uh, it happened when uh, all the news uh, arrived in the Balkans. Uh, for example, when the soldiers learned about the coup of um, of the summer 1917, when uh, the military tried to remove uh, K- uh, Kerensky from power with the coup of uh, the General Kornilov. And it was um, very embarrassing for the officers in the Balkans, uh, which started to to feel like some some op- opposition to their to their rank. At the same time, everyone uh, uh, started to be quite tired of the war, uh, tired of tired of be of being uh, far from home. Moreover, not all the Russian troops uh, was authorized to go to Salonika to to have some rest. So all these tensions began to grow, and. Uh, um, uh, moreover, uh, the soldiers started to ask to take part in the political process that was uh, happening in uh, Russia. They, they even organized um, some kind of a committee to, of a delegation to go to Russia, uh, go back to Russia to take part in the Constitutional Assembly to, that was supposed to create a constitution for uh, the new R- Russian state. So... At the summer of 1917, you can really uh, feel the tension. And moreover, they are uh, on the front line in front of the Bulgarians, and the the Bulgarian uh, soldiers uh, start at the summer of 1917 to send propaganda to the Russian soldiers and uh, saying, uh, uh, while you are here on, in Macedonia, uh, they are starting to share the land. They are starting to, to gain new rights and so on. And so what are you doing here? Which is quite ironic because uh, when they sent the Russian troops in the Balkans, they saw that this would uh, uh, give uh, good morale to the Serbian ally and that would uh, terrify the Bulgarian enemy. And suddenly it was right the, the opposite that was happening. In, the, in September, October, uh, the propaganda starts to be quite effective. You have reports about fraternizations on the front line between Bulgarian soldiers and, and Russian soldiers exchanging uh, uh, bread, uh, vodka, wine, and things like that. And suddenly, the, uh, you have the Bolshevik crew, and uh, Lenin asked for peace. And what do the Bulgarians, uh, when they hear about that, they send messages all along the, uh, the front line to the Russian troops to say, peace has been uh, asked, uh, an armistice will be con- con- concluded, so Russia is not at war anymore. 
and suddenly no one wants to fight. Uh, and the Russian soldiers refused uh, to follow the French orders, and uh, they even started to, to oppose physically to, the, to their French colleagues. That is quite an extreme change of affairs. Um, and sort of following up on that, once the Bolshevik coup slash revolution occurs then in October and Russia begins to withdraw from the war, once that starts to get wrapped up, um, what happens with those Russian soldiers? Do most of them go back to Russia? Do most of them end up in exile somewhere? Do the officers go one place and the men go another place? Or what's their kind of final destiny the the end uh, will be longer because uh, it became uh, even more complicated because uh, the french general uh, sarai uh, made an inspection on the front line he saw that even before the uh, the bolshevik coup that discipline was not here anymore all the front line was kind of in danger with this uh Uh, discipline issue, and he said that sooner or later we'll, we'll have to withdraw all these troops. The problem is, um, as I said uh, earlier, that Sarai had no reserves. The France and the British uh, Empire were, were not giving enough soldiers to uh, to turn, uh, to make, uh, uh, to give rest to some, and to send others to the front. So suddenly, we move like. Uh, Around uh, 15,000 soldiers, uh, Russian soldiers, were on the front line. It seems to everyone impossible, and that's why all these Russian soldiers, even undisciplined, even refusing to to fight, remained remained on the front for a very long time. Uh, when Sarai is removed, because it was uh, it was uh, seen in London as in Paris um, as an incompetent general and. Uh, He started to to argue with all his officers, even uh, the closest friends, and the relations with uh, the British uh, troops were terrible at this point of the war. And they sent uh, the the general uh, Guillaume, who arrived in at the end of December um, 1917. And when he saw that, he said, "We we have to do something. We have to remove all of them." So he took. Um, a big part of his colonial troops and colonial reserves and sent his troops to remove uh, Manu military, all these uh, Russian soldiers, expecting that it could be a violent episode. Uh, it could, uh, some troubles could, could happen. All along the front line, he, uh, he sent these troops to, to remove the Russians and In some places, it was a mess, like uh, everyone refusing to do uh, uh, what they were asked to. And on the part, when the French said, uh, so Russia is out of war, you are going out of war now, please come. And it happened more easily. Uh, once you say uh, to these Russian soldiers, um, the war is over for you, they accept to come and they hope to go back to Russia as soon uh, as, as possible. You, you even have some units who, you, who were half drunk already and who went out of the trenches uh, screaming and, uh, and yelling and saying, uh, we finally go to Russia. And there was some kind of joy at this moment. You also had... Uh, episode where the Bulgarian knew that was the situation was not that well on the front, and they tried to attack uh, the positions. 
and that really endangered uh, the front line on on several points but once all these uh, soldiers were taken from the from uh, uh, from the front line you also have to take all the soldiers who were uh, addressed in the villages of macedonia where the russian kind of created a, some kind of russian life in these places with the soviets with the councils with the meetings and so it was a real police operation to clean all these villages from from uh, the R Russian troops. But once all gathered, the French army asked to the Russian soldiers to choose between three categories. Uh, either you are uh, you still want to fight and you can be a volunteer in the Légion Française, uh, in the Légion étrangère, and we create a Russian Legion in the uh, in the in the French army, or uh, you accept work for the French army. The French army at at the, this mo mo moment had a had a lot to do in Greece uh, with maintaining roads, building others, create um, to clean uh, rivers, uh, to create bridges, and so on. So uh, they really needed manpower also on this on this. Uh, front uh, on this uh, uh, working front, uh, I would say, and the others, the people, the the soldiers that were uh, too undisciplined, not listen a word uh, or an order coming from the French army, um, they were sent to uh, to forced labor uh, in northern Africa or in some camps uh, in the Greek forest or in the Greek islands. So. They divided all these soldiers in three categories, uh, and it remained a bit like this until the end of the war. Uh, they were sent to Russia. Uh, they were sent back to R Russia only in 1919 and 1920, when the French government accepted to give them back to uh, Bolshevik uh, and to Soviet Russia uh, in exchange of French civilians. Who were detained um, in in Petrograd and in Moscow under the custody of the of the of the Soviet authorities, um, and about three thousand Russian soldiers remain in France. They remain in France for many reasons. On the French side, also you had uh, mutinies, and uh, they, the soldiers were given the same uh, choice between the three categories, and uh, a lot of them became workers uh, in French villages, in factories. There they met uh, women, they, get, they got married. So that's for the, the part of the soldiers, one of the main, uh, of the, of the main re reasons. And the other big part uh, who never came back to Russia was, of course, uh, uh, the officers. Many of them even uh, went to the, into the white forces during the, the Russian Civil War. For example, um, one of the brigades on the French front was uh, commanded by the general Maruszewski, who became one of the main generals, uh, Russian generals during the during the Russian Civil War on the uh, on the northern front uh, near uh, Petrograd, Finland, and uh, in the Baltic uh, and what would become the Baltic states. And on the Macedonians, uh, on the Macedonian side. Uh, the Russian part of this uh, expeditionary force, commanded by the General Diterix, who was uh, one of the last uh, Russian white Russian general who, to to hold what could be a decent army, but far uh, in Asia. So 
you can see that many of these officers have chosen to go on the side of another of the of the Russian civil war. You, you have another example: it, uh, is uh, the soldier Malinovsky, who later became the uh, a, a marshal of the Soviet Union, and uh, he was a Khrushchev's uh, defense minister. He he was a soldier in uh, the Russian expeditionary force in France. So you can see like some different trajectories between the these uh, different officers. That is quite a fascinating part. That might be uh, one of the most interesting aspects of the whole thing is how it how it ended um, and and the sort of the destinies of those who ended up uh, stuck in all these places. And it kind of brings us full circle from starting with talking about these ideas in, in 1914 about, you know, what to do, where, where we could send troops and ending up with the Russian civil war, which of course we've been covering in the, in the video episodes quite intensely over the past year. So thank you so much for uh, talking to us today and you. Uh, sharing all of this cool stuff that's part of your PhD research. If for our viewers who are more interested in, in kind of following up and, and maybe becoming a bit more familiar with the research that you've done, how can they find you? I mean, you're active on Twitter. I guess we can probably put a link there somewhere. Yeah. Yes, uh, you can find me uh, quite easily on Twitter. And if you're interested in the um, by this topic, I post uh, quite uh, uh, regularly, if not daily, uh, stuff about the uh, the Macedonian Front um, and also about the history of Russia, and um, and also how is it to to do research about Russian history, which yeah. which is a, a a saga unto itself, I suppose. Uh, sometimes. All right. Thank you once again, uh, Gwendal, for joining us, and uh, we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much.